Transmission incoming, over. Copy that, transmission received. Got there you go. Now. Yeah, I see the blue light popped on there. Right. I didn't activate that. I thought it was automatic. So. Yep. All right. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and start recording if that's okay with you. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Ron, for joining me today. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So I know that you have some experience with Johnson Island, and I've been trying to collect some people who have been on the island and can kind of tell in their own words their experiences. I think you're familiar with the episode I did on the history of Johnson Island as far as the nuclear tests and the storage of the Agent Orange and the various other things. Uh, so I wanted to hear just kind of start to finish your experience with the island. Okay. Well, I arrived in uh, 1990 um, from Fort Jackson. I was a clerk and I was sent there uh, to work, you know, uh, for 12 months, but I extended my tour for a second year, so I ended up staying there two years. Uh, so I worked in security plans and operations. Um, they called it SPO3. It was in the uh, JCADS building, which is a uh, big yellow building on the island. And <clears throat> I didn't really learn a lot of the history and uh, that I know now until I left. Um, I knew that there were, you know, chemical weapons stored over there and then when we got to the island, we'd seen where there was a, uh, you know, fenced off area for the Agent Orange. Uh, did not know anything about the Thor missiles until uh, a couple of years ago when I got cancer and I started researching a little bit more. And I believe I emailed you a document that was on uh, a few minutes ago that was on the uh, internet that I can't find anymore for some reason. Uh, I'm not saying they took it off purposely. It's just, I, you know, probably I'm not trying to locate it like I did the first time. Uh, but you know, there's some information in there where they were talking about, uh, the, uh, Thor missiles in 62, um, and they had two, uh, misfires where they had, uh, explosions and dumped radiation plutonium on it. And, uh, of course, you know, island life, there was not a lot to do there. Um, you go snorkeling, fishing, diving, uh, quite a bit. And a lot of those contaminants were in the lagoon that we did not know about. Um, you know, it was just, you know, not really alerted. People were more concerned about the chemical weapons, you know, the sarin and the ex-agent that we were actually um, disarming over there, which I didn't actually work in the, uh, the Red Hat area. Uh, so I went down there, you know, a few times uh, for tours and, you know, just learning about it. So uh, the, mainly the 54 Bravos were working in that area. Um, <clears throat> uh, they had some interesting things that happened on the island. You know, a lot of dignitaries come out. Uh, the King of Samoa, um, Senator Inouye, and um, just kind of, you know, seeing and kind of giving their blessing for what they were doing on the island to get rid of their chemical munitions. Um, the... Um, uh, the King of Samoa, he had a beard for like 20 years that was kind of traditional. And uh, I think they said that he had to shave it before he came out to the island so he could get a seal on a mask in case there was a leaker. 
um, the guys that were working in the um, uh, Red Hat area, uh, when I would go down there, it always seemed like they were always trying to contain a leaker in one of those bunkers. So they would, you know, be wrapped up in their butyl rubber suits and uh, they would uh, go in there and have to seal those up. And when they got done and decontaminated, they'd have that much sweat in their boots, you know, and it's, it's really hot in those things. And now I didn't have to do that, like I said, but I got to go down there and see those guys that were doing it. But so I was actually, you know, right there in front of a bunker without a mask, even though it had a leaker on it. And their platoon sergeant was, uh, or E7, uh, uh, or higher was instructing them what to do when they go in there and they didn't have mask on in front of the bunker. So I don't know what the distance radius, uh, they were required to have that on, but I know that uh, I don't think I'd want to be standing in front of those bunkers knowing that there was a leaker in there. So I was a little nervous about that. Um, but uh, it was high stress, you know, job. It was a six day work week for most of us, sometimes seven. Uh, and, uh, but so when stress time came, they had a lot of activities uh, for you to do. You could go snorkeling, diving, windsurfing, uh, fishing, deep sea fishing, uh, you'd swim in the pools. Uh, they had DOD shows, um, but a lot of my time I would spend out in, in the water. And uh, um, unfortunately, I didn't realize that when it would rain, it would wash contaminants into the ocean from where the uh, AO spill was. I think there was about 350,000 gallons that leaked in 1976. Yeah, and, I think that's <clears throat> pretty close, yeah. And... Uh, uh, the way I understand it, when I was reading through those documents, that it was in the water table as well. So um, I'm not the way I understand it anyway. Uh, but uh, combined with that, everybody that would go into the ocean and swim, and that's washed out in the, the ocean as well, contaminating it. And when they had the Thor missiles um, explode, they push those contaminants into the lagoon as well. And uh, they, uh, nobody warned anyone, you know, it just, you just go swimming in, it was just a normal day. Oh, you're safe, it's fine. But if you look at like, you know, the things that are out in the past few years, like the movie Chernobyl, or Chernobyl, excuse me. Uh, yes, when you're there with those incidents, they have um, you know, very catastrophic, you know, uh, events that happen and um, casualties that uh, occur from those events are, are pretty high and, and pretty strong. But uh, you learn that, you know, I think, I guess back in uh, uh, science class when you're in the, of course, I was in high school in the 80s, uh, you know, radiation has about a 50-year life. And then uh, plutonium, I think, is a 24,000-year half-life. Yep. Uh, and I was reading where plutonium is not toxic to touch, but when it gets in the air and dust particles, then it becomes toxic. And Boston Island always had a 15 knot wind, which is about 25 to 28 miles per hour. And the reason they chose that site for the chemical demilitarization is so if anything escaped in the stacks, it would dissipate uh, in the wind. Uh, but when you've got 24 acres of radiation and plutonium, and I don't know how that was sealed or anything uh, or uh, whatever in a bunker or whatever, but 
I don't think you can contain all those contaminants. Um, so when you're that's blowing and it's in your uh, lungs, nose, whatever, and, uh, I kind of uh, took a little more interest when I found out I had nasal pharyngeal cancer. So <clears throat> I got into a little bit more of the history. Um, they had, uh, I think about 200,000 munitions come over from Germany, uh, which was, it's, it's been, you know, articles online I found uh, where they had talked about that, not in detail, but um, I know they took a naval ship out of dry dock. Uh, they took it and uh, loaded up in Germany and they couldn't come through Guadalcanal because of all the old munitions. They didn't want to let them take that shortcut. So they had to go around South America and come back up and they hit some storms. They're hitting 25, 30 foot waves or whatever. And when they get the island, you know, they're just constantly containing leakers uh, as they go around. So everybody was carrying masks around for that time period. And uh, so, but still no worries, not really a big alert and everything seemed to go fine. Uh, as far as we know, until I start joining this uh, website, or not really a website, but a uh, uh, page on Facebook for Johnson H. Health Issues, and I see all these people with different issues, and you don't know what they're caused, caused from or, or whatever. Um, but uh, I had a chance to go to uh, Mbanika, and I turned it down, and another one of my uh, friends there, Stephen Turner, who was also a clerk, uh, he... Uh, uh, went on the trip as the clerk and uh, they flew them down there into a field and they were getting munitions from World War II to bring back what which uh, Imbanika is uh, Solomon Islands hmm. and it's down by Guadalcanal so I guess in the World War II they when, when it's time to go home they just shut everything off the ship and uh, get as many people on board as they can and bring them back home is the pretty much the scenario uh, from where they're Japan leaving vehicles behind or whatever and even in the Vietnam era, they did the same thing with helicopters, just push them over boats, you know, the more you can get on, uh, the better, but uh, just get rid of the weight and bring troops on. Uh, but, uh, and one of the interesting things out there that happened was Greenpeace came out and they were wanting to storm the island. Of course they didn't, you know, but it was kind of a big deal for that time. And I think Lieutenant General Kicklider was the, uh, uh, Pacific commander at the time and David R. Moss was the base colonel for the, the army and uh, I think Colonel Brent Smith was the Air Force commander at the time there so um, uh, and I think after that it was uh, Major Gen or excuse me Lieutenant Colonel no Colonel Dozberg was after that which he retired as a Major General and then um, I can't remember who was after Brent Smith on uh, the Air Force side for the the Air Force um, but uh, had a Russian nuclear sub come out to check on uh, what we were doing. They broke down, they dry docked them, and until uh, they could get parts out to them, they weren't allowed out. Uh, and uh, we always had Micronesia flights coming in to refuel. Uh, they weren't allowed off the planes uh, or anything because they were civilians, they didn't have masks. So they had to stay on board, refuel, take off. They had a, a heavy downpour one day, it blew an engine out, so they had to shut down operations for like a week or two and uh, the civilians were walking around the island and everything like that. And I'm thinking, oh, it's no big deal, you know, whatever, but you just don't know what, you know, may have happened to those people that were there as well. So, 
Yeah. Uh, but they always had plenty of things to do. You know, just uh, the main issue with a lot of people and uh, the military is when you're landlocked like that, there's a lot of drinking going on and different things. And uh, uh, people can get into trouble for, you know, certain things, letting that stress off because they lose their mind out there from being so landlocked. I mean, you're stuck there for 12 months and uh, it's two miles long, probably a quarter mile wide. Um, the, um, uh, I guess um, some people got other faster than others, but not too many. Uh, a lot of people dealt with it pretty well. And uh, uh, a lot of it was, if you like the ocean life, you know, there was, you know, plenty of things to do. And I was looking at where they um, had the first initial Thor missile, um, I guess, accident. It was on Sand Island. Well, you can take a boat over there and walk around the island as long as you didn't walk on the frigate birds uh, because uh, they had a, I think it was a blue-footed booby and the frigate birds would nest over there and mainly the frigates, but you could walk around the island. You weren't allowed to walk. So they've been walking through contaminants or whatever. Uh, who knows? Um, and uh, it was out there by the Rand Tower on one of those islands. Those are little, three little smaller islands out there. But uh, um, I, I can't, I, I probably went snorkeling in the, or swimming in that ocean and the lagoon there probably, you know, three to five times a week, you know, I mean, it was, it was beautiful coral down there and that you could, you know, go down and see, you know, sea life and everything. And uh, you could go out to the edge of the reef and you could, you know, get underwater and look just outside that edge of that reef. And it was uh, 1200 fathoms, which is 7,200 feet. And you could see ocean life swimming around. I mean, it was pretty miraculous, but uh, take your mind off of the stress of being out there. So um, it, was, it was, it was unique. Yeah. That sounds really, if it weren't for, you know, all the, the hazardous waste stuff floating around, that sounds like paradise really. I mean, it does. if you minus all of the bad stuff. Oh yeah. I would, I would give anything to live in, uh, you know, like Grand Cayman where you have really beautiful clear water or uh, even, you know, in Hawaii, I mean, Hawaii, the waters are a little more, uh, I guess, got a lot more force and strength to them than they do in the uh, Caribbean. But, uh, but yeah, it's your ocean life. Once you get to live it for a while and you're pulled away from it, you're like kind of drawn back to it. it you know, now I'm stuck in the Midwest here. So it's, it's not as, not as nice. I think people are drawn to water really. Uh, they, I, I've read studies where uh, people tend to have a happier attitude. It's like having a dog, you know, it just kind of lengthens your life, but unless there's chemicals there. So that's, yeah. That's the other issue. So yeah, the lagoon is uh, unfortunately, from what I've read, the focal point of all of the hazardous debris. Uh, mm -hmm. From what I've read, all of the nuclear disasters that they had, every time a rocket would fail, they would just scoop up all the parts and push it right into the lagoon. Yes. yes. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the science of it of the lagoon, you know, to say for sure. I got to think that it dissipates a little bit and gets carried off maybe hopefully, but you know, if something, yeah. But if you have a, you know, something like a warhead or like a, a rocket engine that still has fuel in it, you know, that's just going to sit there and continue to contaminate an area for a very long time. Right now, 
when I snorkeled around, I didn't see anything like that. Um, and I can't remember which end of the island was north or south, um, but out where the JOC was, I do remember some Navy SEALs coming out and they dove down and they detonated some munitions that were dumped off down there. And we got to watch that because you can, you know, watch the blast come up from the water. And uh, it was very brief, but I mean, that's just what they found. Uh, so like, say here's the island and over here, Sand Island and another island, the munitions were over here. So I don't know if they just exploded out there or if it's something that was down there they want to get rid of or if it was an actual munition that was dumped from World War II or what. It was never really, you know, privy to me, even though uh, I got to work with a lot of the different documents that my office gave me to type up. It was more procedural for uh, military police and um, the uh, 54 Bravos that they had to follow when they were down in that area. Um, and maybe some security events, but some of that uh, may have been above my level. I wasn't allowed to work with, but uh, I only had a secret clearance at the time. And um, I think uh, the A7s and above had a uh, top secret. So uh, there's a lot of things that I didn't you know, really get to know about, but a lot of stuff I'm, stuff I'm talking about has all been declassified. I'm looking at it on the internet. So I know it's, you know, it's out there. So I'm not, you know, <laughs> exposing anything that people don't know already. Uh, Absolutely. But, uh, but I, I did see where another guy on the Johnson Atoll webpage passed away a week ago from glioblastoma. And uh, now I don't, I don't know if that guy was on the um, uh, Johnson Atoll health issues page or not. Um, but I know there's over 500 people on there and I don't know how many are medical but a lot of them do have medical issues and uh, I don't know if they'll ever do anything with it because the, the broad spectrum that that's going to cover. I mean, when you talk about the radiation, the plutonium, uh, the agent orange that was brought there from, uh, oh, what was it? Uh, Okinawa. So they have issues in Okinawa. So when you get into, dealing with uh, government, uh, I guess, uh, military compensation, I guess, to, to cover your medical issues or whatever, or even if they do, you know, like uh, a disability claim or anything like that, you're looking at opening a can of worms to so many areas that were uh, exposed as Taiwan, you know, uh, Vietnam. Uh, if you go back to Germany where, um, the uh, munitions that we got came from over there. So when you pay, if you have to pay people over there, it's not in American dollars you have to pay. You have to, you know, change that to German dollars, which would be exponentially more, uh, I think, um, for them. Uh, one of my friends that I joined with, he retired just recently as a lieutenant colonel, and he was in for 30 years, and he was explaining that to me how when they pay them off, if, if that was to open up that area for them um, because they had the the VX agents and the sarin gas over there stored like 200,000 rounds. Yeah. Um, but uh, it gets to be uh, so broad and so expensive. But the, the only thing that really ticked me off and um, I really shouldn't be ticked off about it, but 
um, I, you know, like 9-11, that was very, you know, horrible event that happened. And, uh, but, you know, they, they put like, they just authorized, what was it? Was it 32 or 42 billion uh, this year? Yeah, it was quite and, a bit of money. Yeah, but yet they still deny anyone that was stationed around all these contaminants that was doing, you know, a service to the country to get rid of it. And, um, and you know, it's just uh, kind of disheartening that, uh, you know, if you're, uh, you know, a, a member of service, you, you're kind of lessened less than value to, you know, civilian value. So it, it, it kind of takes me off a little bit, but uh, yeah. that's just no, it, it should, man. And I agree. Yeah. Not to say that 9-11 guys don't deserve that money. It's just that everybody does, you know, right. it's not just right. one, it's it, everybody does, you know, and yeah. I've talked to many people who've come down with cancer. I just talked to another gentleman earlier today. His name was Frank. I think, you know, Frank from the group. Uh, Frank, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's yeah. Frank. Uh, yeah. yeah, I go through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, there's quite a bit in there. And, and there's actually more and more people. I just added a guy to the group the other day that was a bus driver there. So, but and now, you know, he's not a, you know, enlisted member or uh, the military or anything like that, but he was, he was there working for several years. And, uh, he drove the bus on Saturdays when uh, from people were going over to the plant. And so he's made a lot of trips around that island on the bus, you know, and uh, you get downwind of that stuff, you're susceptible and you get upwind of it. You're, you know, you're a little more safe, but, um, but still you're there. And uh, there's a lot of people that uh, uh, just uh, don't, uh, you know, really know about that site as well. I mean, then we probably have a lot more people. I was trying to reach out to a guy named Robert Lemon that, and we called him Bob Lemon when I was out there. And, uh, he was one who was actually containing a leaker, uh, when I was in the red hat area, we were there at the same time. And ironically, he just lives three or four hours North of me here. And, uh, I found him on the internet, but I can't seem to contact him on Facebook. So I don't know if he's alive or dead. I saw a photo with him where he had a bandage around his head on Facebook and a like a big lump up here or something like that covered up by the bandage. But I don't know if that's an injury from work or if that's, you know, something, you know, from there, cause I wanted to alert him to the group. But uh, the only person I think that has ever gotten compensation for any type of chemical out or issue, not, not even really any chemical compensation from being out there was, a guy who, um, oh, PTSD from, he was scared he was always going to be contaminated by the uh, munitions in there. So he just kind of freaked out and he got PTSD for that. And uh, they, uh, you know, I, I can imagine that'd be pretty stressful. You know, it's a real thing. Uh, you know, it's not just combat issues, you know, it's actual putting your life on the line and you're like, you haven't really thought about it until it actually happens. And then, you know, it creates that inner stress. Um, but uh, I had looked up on mine. Uh, I was thinking, how did I get this? Because I was tested by my doctor on just about everything uh, that causes this particular form of cancer. And uh, they couldn't come up with anything. And so I just happened to be sitting out in the lobby waiting to see Dr. David Kim 
and I brought that magazine back and I showed it to him. I think it was Fort Record, Alabama, on how all these civilians were uh, uh, sick and dying down from uh, Monsanto's um, Agent Orange mm. from the base. And uh, I said, let me tell you where I was stationed. I started showing it to him and he goes, I'm going to write you a presumptive letter. I, goes, I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but uh, we have not found anything to link you your cancer to this. And he goes, and it doesn't develop overnight. It takes time for it to just, once it's in your body, it's just waiting to come out. So, um, so thankfully for me, I was cured. I'm two, a little over two years out now. Um, but uh, uh, I, I kind of went through that and they don't, it's not really a valid case for the radiation or plutonium. So unless you were there during the actual incident of the missile, so you can breathe in all these toxins and swim in it and whatever, but if you weren't there for the incident, too bad. So that's just the way it is. And it's the same thing for the Agent Orange. After 1976, there was a lady in Henderson I ran into who graduated with, I can't remember her name, but uh, she graduated with a, a degree in um, old, uh, trying to think what, what she said it was. They basically go out and, you know, uh, become a reporter and. Oh yeah. Like journalism and stuff. Journalism. Yes. I think this is chemo brain. <laughs> not old age. Not old age. It's actually a thing that exists. It's, uh, I was looking it up and talking to my doctor about it. You have chemotherapy. Uh, it's kind of like you almost have Alzheimer's. You get the cloudy mind and you can't think of certain terms sometimes. And it happens a lot lately. Uh, but, uh, uh, it lasts for about five years post uh, uh, chemotherapy. So no, I didn't uh, know that. And I was on cisplatin. So um, and it, that was actually developed in like the 1800s, and they found out in the 50s that it worked well for certain cancers. Uh, so they started using that. Um, but she was saying her dad worked for the VA over in Louisville and was told, "You deny everyone after 1976. You know, if they weren't in the Vietnam era, deny them." So. Huh. I believe it. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, you know, a certain issue. And ironically, she was a girl who had cancer as well. And, uh, she had, uh, some type of, uh, esophageal and, uh, it was pretty traumatic, no, no stomach and everything. She had it like when she was 19 and, uh, uh, went through like six years of just continually going through that. So, but unrelated to, you know, Johnson. Oh, yeah, completely. But it was just ironic that I ran into her and we started talking about, you know, uh, cancer because she was looking at me and she was like, uh, well, you gained weight. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Because I'd lost 60 pounds and I was, you know, explaining to her about the cancer and she was saying about her and I was telling her I was trying to do the uh, claim and she said, well, good luck on that because I don't think you're going to get it because my dad was told, you know, what I previously stated. So, uh, it was uh, an issue there. So, yeah. But, but you know, you have people like I had a buddy, Scott Pitts, who uh, I'm pretty sure he uh, retired as well because I saw him on Facebook a couple years ago and he was at the Pentagon, had gotten out and went back in, but he was constantly trapping, you know, uh, fish, crabs and stuff and, you know, to put in a tank he had in his, you know, uh, room and uh, and eat as well, you know. And we all caught fish and ate fish. So fish were all contaminated, you know. It's just that 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 
the exponential issues that you do out there just seem to escalate and uh, there was no warning. You know, this, we were told uh, uh, there was three of us went out there, Steve Johnson, Stephen Turner, and myself and from Fort Jackson. And when we were called in, they said, we need three people to go to Johnson Island. And they explained it to us and, well, not sure we want to go to a chemical area. Oh, no, no, it's perfectly safe. You know, we're young and naive. Okay, well, yeah. it's safe. Why not? You know, maybe it'll, you know, give us some exposure for uh, learning something new and, you know, potential, you know, uh, way to get rank if you're in a hardship or something like that, you know, and you can get some school time in while you're out there, you get promotion points, and uh, they had a little, uh, uh, a, a retired colonel that was teaching college classes out there so you could get, you know, uh, credits uh, while you were, you know, working out there. So uh, it was just, uh, it might sound like a no-brainer, you know. So, but uh, little did I know. So. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's a crazy story. And you led me on to a tip that I kind of went down the rabbit hole a little bit. When you mentioned the World War II tanker leaving Germany and being basically sunk or and dumping the munitions off uh, Solomon Island, I started reading up on that and I found, oh man, I don't even know how many instances. I would say that it's safe to say, rough estimate, there's probably a million tons of dumped chemical, biological, and nerve agents all around the world. And surprisingly, a ton off the East Coast of the United States. And it's all open record. And there's this one gentleman who got through the Freedom of Information Act and stuff like that and built a database. And you can Google it. And he has a Google Earth file you can download. And it'll show you exactly where all of the dump sites are. And wow. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of mustard gas. It's a lot of mustard gas. Yeah. So that was manufactured all throughout World War I and all throughout World War II by the Germans. Right. And when uh, the war was over, that stuff was stockpiled by the Russians uh, and the United States. You know, we yes. kind of essentially agreed that we weren't going to use it, but you know how it goes. Uh, right. What good is that agreement once the mustard gas starts flying? And... Uh, when the world, when the World War II was over, we took a lot of that stuff out of there and shipped it other places. And yeah. after the wall fell down, then we got rid of all of it. Right. And that was when we really started cleaning things up, you know, right around, you know, 1990, 91 timeframe. Yeah, that was a lot to do with Ronald Reagan, the uh, chemical disarmament agreement. And ironically, my friend I was telling you about, I joined with, he went to West Point after a couple years in. Uh, he had learned uh, Czech, the language, uh, out of Presidio Monterey before he went to, um, or got the chance to go to West Point. And uh, he was an intel officer for the first three years, and he actually got to go to Russia to um, basically inspect their um, uh, disarmament of munitions there, uh, kind of like what we were doing out where we were. So he was on one spectrum. I was on the other. So, but he did that for three years before he went into special forces. And uh, uh, I, we're going to have uh, dinner tomorrow night. We're going to talk about, you know, things from the past. I haven't seen him for a long time because in special ops, he was not allowed to have a Facebook page or anything like that, limited on emails. It's gone six months out of the year at a time. So it's, uh, it's a different life, you know. I can't imagine doing that for, uh, let's see, he graduated 
96 from West Point. So 96 till recently, you know, or actually 99 was the time he became a uh, special forces officer. So all that time out on the, in the field going wherever, but uh, you know, I guess it's great uh, TDY pay because you don't pay taxes so or fed, federal taxes anyway. So you got to save a lot of money. No, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so. That's a really incredible story. And I'm going to do another episode um, solely devoted to the mustard gas thing, because that, that in and of itself is just, that's a wild story to think about what we did and how we did it and why we did it. And that there's just, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of tons of mustard gas at the bottom of the ocean and sometimes oh, yeah. not that far away uh yeah. so that i think warrants its own story right it definitely does now here's something i don't know if you knew or not but i asked one time and i don't know if they were pulling my leg and i haven't found the information yet but when they were um they were hydrolyzing the munitions out there where i was and i said what do you mean by hydrolyzing so they would inject water to dilute 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 then they'd run through, heat it up for a thousand degrees, and then let it crystallize, cut it up in seven pieces, and then they buried a thousand feet deep somewhere in California. Really? So, yeah, that's what it was explained to me. So I don't know if that's true or not, because I'm thinking, you know, anybody digging in California with as many fault lines as they have, that seems kind of uh, uh, bizarre to me. I would think they would do something else, but I really don't know. So I was, was that Johnson know, Island chemicals or was that a different area? Johnson Island. Yeah. Because I was, I'm not much on my science or anything like that. Um, but uh, I was thinking you burn something at a thousand degrees, it's going to disintegrate, you know, is what I was thinking. So why would, you know, so I don't know if they have like, you know, coal plants have that potash or whatever it is that they burn afterwards. You know, you see mountains and mountains of it pile up and they just, you know, plant grass seed over it just like anything else, put dirt and grass seed over it. But, uh, I don't know if maybe that's what they did with that stuff, if there was residual or whatever that they would bury, but uh, they said it would crystallize. I'm like, what? so I never got to see the process uh, or anything like that, but I would, it would be interesting to know for sure if that's what they did with it, so. Yeah, I'm trying to find somebody who knows a little bit more about that. And so far, I haven't had anybody. But if you if you know of anybody who has a, some inside knowledge, I'd be more than happy to talk to them as well. Um, I Actually, I looked and he's still alive. Uh, he's a retired Major General. Uh, I have not connected with him or anything, but it's uh, John C. Dozberg. And I'm trying to think, let me look on my phone to see where he lives. I don't know how you would come into contact with him. I did see... Colonel David Moss died a couple years ago or a year or two ago. And he was out in Colorado. And I know he was very intelligent. Um, I think it was chemistry and biology. And uh, let's see, I think he went and had a doctorate or something at one point. Uh, let's see. John. But these guys are getting up in age. And uh, let's see. I know he was interviewed recently. I'm trying to look it up. Yeah, he just wrote a letter in 2019. Um, let's see. To the University of North Texas. Letter from John C. Dozberg. From the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. 
So, so he's still out there. He just wrote a letter on November 20th of this year. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to try to find that. But he was the base commander, and he would know absolutely everything. You know, not the base commander. He was the army commander. Uh, they had a another colonel that was the base commander for the Air Force. It, because it was Air Force controlled. We were just out there for the, the chemical part of it. So, oh, okay. And uh, so you, it was basically joint tr- joint readiness, almost like that. Yeah. So it's, uh, but he's still alive and he would be the one who would have the most knowledge. Um, uh, I know there's a, a captain that was out there. His name was Scott Koenig, K-O-E-N-I-G. Um, I actually saw him at uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky when I went there after Johnson Island. Um, and there's a Mark Solhide, S-O-L- he's an E7, S-O-L-H-E-I-D, but he was a sergeant first class out there. He retired after there. But I am, I'd seen where he might have been working for NASA or something like that. I don't know what he was doing, um, unless it's just a joke, what I'd seen on his profile. But I haven't found a way to contact him or anything. But uh, so I'm going around and, and, and doing this. But if there's anyone in here that is an officer that was uh, in the chemical corps, those would be the ones that you would want to talk to. Um, now, I'm trying to think this. Uh, there was a uh, guy that was out there with me. He was the last captain in the office. I worked with security plans and operations. And I... I think his name was Chris something, but he was a major up in Newport, Indiana, which is just north of me, uh, a few hours, and they had 3% of the stockpile up there, and he was commander of that facility till they closed it up. Uh, oh, Chris, uh, what is his name? He's coming to me. Isaacson is his name, Chris Isaacson, and uh, he was a major at Newport Chemical, and he would be probably pretty knowledgeable as well. But John C. Dozberg would be the one I would really love to talk to about uh, those issues and in uh, and, and particular to ask him why he hasn't petitioned Congress for the soldiers that were there. So, but yeah. Uh, yeah, so I mean, if that's your, that's your boys, then you ought to, and you're, you know, getting the authority to know, you know, I don't, I don't think it'll hurt him any. I mean, he's getting a pretty nice pension. So, yeah. Um, exactly. So, yeah, so it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, I think, uh, what was it? Uh, Lieutenant General Kicklider said something to him one time when he was there. I was driving uh, Kicklider around for uh, uh, his stay on the island and talk to him about certain things. And um, I heard uh, Kicklider tell him, I goes, oh, don't worry about them one stars, John. He goes, they're a dime a dozen. He goes, when you get two and three, then I'll talk and then we'll worry. So, so, but, so he actually made it to that two star. So I was, that's kind of ironic too, but, um, cause it's really difficult to get past that kernel level and, uh, he, he did it. So, but, uh, he would be, um, a guy that would have all the nose and, you know, um, uh, insides, what they did with everything, you know, it's just, uh, be kind of interesting to pick his ear you know so and uh see what's inside that head is you know yeah absolutely i'll try to get a hold of him 
Well, I want to thank you for meeting with me, but before we go, yeah. I'd like to, I like to end the show and always just ask a couple questions. Uh, one of the questions is, so what was it like for you when you got out of the military? Like when you were transitioning from the military into the civilian world, uh, how well did that go for you? What was that like? Well, considering I was getting married, um, like less than three weeks after I got out, it was quite exciting, really. I, I, was, I had thought about staying in, but my wife was like, I'm not sure I want you to. And um, the, uh, to me, the thought of, you know, making a career out of it and retiring early, you know, would be uh, uh, something fun to do. And I don't look back and say, oh, I wish I could have, wish I had done that anyway or anything. But uh, it, uh, it, it's different. Um, I like the military for some things. I like some of the structure. Uh, I was, I was happy to get away from the abuse of power. <laughs> so, because, uh, you do see that a lot more than you do in the civilian world because, uh, you don't have to take it, uh, there you have to take it, you know, whether you liked it or not. Now it's a little different nowadays because, uh, Colin was telling me that, uh, they got these stress cards, timeout cards and stuff like that when they're in basic training. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and uh, it's, uh, it, it was kind of exciting for me because I was going to school too. I was going out to USI and uh, University of Southern Indiana. I did not finish. I wish I had. Um, but uh, my wife and I were going at the same time and it just got too expensive after about three years into it. Um, so one of us had to, you know, really concentrate on keeping a full-time job and um so when she got done and i uh, uh was thinking about going back i just kind of let it go and didn't do it but um there were some things i wish i had done while i was in i got to do the air assault course at fort campbell which was fun uh i never i would have probably never ever jumped out of a plane but knowing that Colin got to do the certain things that he did, being in special ops, they get to do the halo jumps. And he goes, oh, that don't even bother you. And, you know, I think, man, I should have done that. So that's, you know, uh, it would have been kind of fun to be in special forces or something like that, I think, where you get to, you know, really just go out and, you know, see the world and do tactical things and just, uh, you know, experience uh, the things you see in these movies nowadays that seem surreal, like, the uh, the fish special forces group out of uh, Fort Campbell when they went over to uh, Afghanistan and they had like even like three years to uh, establish a relationship with the uh, I guess it was the Afghans I can't remember the yeah so funny story uh, I met that man really cool yeah so there's a book it's called Horse Soldiers. Okay. Yep, and it follows the Smith, the Fifth Special Forces Group, the Green Berets, and in yes. the book there is a, a man who is a captain who's leading that entire thing, and there's a movie that's made, and it's called uh, Twelve Strong. Yes, I saw that. Okay, yeah, that movie is yeah. terrible, but the book is fantastic, yes. and I I met the man that that book is about in the. Oh, okay. Yeah, Captain Captain Mitchum, I think, is uh, his yeah. name in, in the book. Yeah. That's a pseudonym. That's not his real name. Uh, okay. It's declassified now, but yeah. he owns a whiskey business in Florida, and it's called Horse Soldier Whiskey. Horse Soldier Whiskey, okay. Yeah, so if you want to 
drink some top end whiskey. Uh, that's what he does now. He's retired. Uh, yeah, he <laughs> he does motivational yeah. speeches and he yeah. makes whiskey. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't drink, but <laughs> I yep. just I used to, but uh, now I might have a beer once or twice a year. Um, but uh, with uh, nasal pharyngeal cancer, um, it, it's really you'd have to become an alcoholic to do that, but it can bring that type of cancer back. Oh, and, yeah. Why risk it? Yeah. And so since I'm not, and never have been, you know, a big drinker, except when I was out of Johnson Island, you know, everybody did that. Um, but when I left there, I, I kind of left that drinking thing in the past. And then, uh, the, uh, uh, it, it's, it's fun to hang out and have a drink or two with people, you know, but, uh, other than that, I, I don't really keep anything in the home, but, it's uh it is interesting a lot of these guys the things that they do and you know uh, how they can uh, set their mind uh you know being successful with something once they come out so that is neat so so with that said my last question before i uh let you off here uh what advice would you have for anybody leaving the military today think twice before you exit make sure that you do want to exit that out of your uh, idea as a career choice. Um, if you're going to leave, make sure you get a technical trade or degree. That's about it. Um, try not to live in your past, the horrors of your past. Um, I don't know, I'm a believer in Christ, so um, things that you didn't pass, you know, Christ says he remembers them no more. Um, you shouldn't either. Don't let it hold you down. Your failures or your uh, things that uh, haunt you. Um, so uh, it's just uh, like something a lot of people, you know, do. They just try. They live in regret, or um, they feel like they never made the right decision. Just move forward. Yep. So I don't know if it really makes sense, but nope. <laughs> you know, I'm picking uh, up what you're putting down. Yeah, because uh, I see a lot of guys that uh, when they leave, they're, you know, there's, there's, I think you sponsor a lot of homeless veterans. I do, yes. Yes. So um, depression is an evil thing. Uh, so if, you know, if you're feeling down about something, you know, get help fast. But uh, I always say look to Christ first because uh, he can, you know, pretty much solve all your answers or he has all your answers to, you know, all your problems. And it's just trying to find that, you know, right person to, you know, help you get through that. I'm, um, and uh, it's just, uh, I don't know, I don't know if I'm creating too much of a long answer here, but uh, uh, enjoy your time you spent. Be proud of it. You know, if uh, people say they don't, uh, you know, talk, you know, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't talk to people who've been in the military. They'll turn their back on you. Don't worry about it. It's just no sweat on your shoulder. Um, but uh, I do believe that uh, you can't let people bother you, uh, whether they recognize the flag or not. That's on them, not on you. It may anger you. Um, it may anger what you fought for, what you believe in, or what you serve for, even if you haven't fought. Um, just, uh, you know, live, you know, the life that Christ wanted you to, you know, so. That's good advice. Thank you. Okay. Sure.
Well, hey, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You know, I'm just trying to collect a bunch of stories and all I want to do is help veterans, you know, and I think the best way for me to do that is to just talk to gentlemen like you and Frank and hear your stories and get your advice. So anybody listening to this, you know, uh, they'll get something out of it. So I want to thank you. Okay. I appreciate that very much. And uh, I I hope it it didn't sound too corny during the interview. I've never been interviewed before. So it's just... It was forward. perfectly fine. You did yeah, great. So, so um, but, uh, you know, if there's anybody interested out there that's watching this uh, uh, on Facebook, Johnson Atoll Health Issues, and, uh, you know, uh, just let me know. Uh, there's three moderators on there. I'm one of them that allow people into the room. Um, the couple, there's one guy that added me to it as a moderator. He is not sure how long he's going to be here. Uh, so he added me. And so if people get involved in that, maybe you can add a couple more just in case, because we never know what's going to happen to the next guy. So yep. um, uh, just uh, get on there and uh, uh, we can go from there and uh, kind of see what's going on and see how uh, people are trying to help us uh, get our issues heard in uh, Congress and the Senate. So I'll put a uh, link to that in the, uh, in the notes for the show, too, so people know how to get there. Okay, sure. Appreciate that. Okay. All right, sir. Well, you have an excellent weekend. All right, you too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Patriot Media Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please subscribe, rate, review, share with your friends, and consider being a donor. If you donate to the show, it helps me grow the podcast to reach more people just like you. And also, I will give 10% of each donation back to homeless veterans. Thanks for listening.